Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to a special episode of the Attacking Scrum podcast. If you've been listening for a while, you will know that routinely we ask ourselves the question, where did it go wrong? And there's arguably no one better positioned to to help us navigate that than the author of the new book, Welsh Rugby, What Went Wrong? Uh, and it's Cy Williams. How are you, Cy? I'm great, thanks, Jed. How are you? Uh, yeah, I'm good, thank you. Just saying... Uh, said you there off air that I bought the book on the Kindle edition on Friday night and uh, thoroughly inverted commas enjoyed reading it but um, it's a it's a brilliant gripping read Um, sadly I I was kind of thinking to myself this would be absolutely amazing book to recommend to someone that they'd really enjoy if it was about like Belgian football or something that wasn't as close to home that I was reliving all of those agonizing moments over and over again and just wishing that the powers that be would have learnt the odd lesson or two. Absolutely, yeah, and, and it's uh, it was kind of a faulty little trip through just endless repeated errors, mistakes, the same things coming around again, the same issues coming up again and again. As you say, if it was a, yeah, as you say, a book about Belgian football or something that we didn't really care about, then it'll probably be quite a, quite a relaxing read. But it was it's pretty enraging to write it. I don't know what it's like to read it, but yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, I, that was, that was going to be one of my first questions, actually. But what what we will do, just for the benefit of the listener, what we're going to do today is we're going to get stuck into this and look at those big issues that Welsh Rugby has faced in the past, continues to pass, uh, continues to face, and see if there is any way of uh, of people learning their lessons and, and kind of what can be done in regards to the the whole game, club, grassroots the very elite of the game, the women's game, all of these mistakes that have been that have been made. So we're going to take a look at that in a um, in a moment. And then at the end of the show, we will be looking back at uh, the weekend's rugby as well. Ordinarily, I would dedicate at least an hour to a Dragons victory because it happens uh, but once a year. Um, but uh, as soon as we've got size, uh, size company this evening, we'll, um, 
we'll keep that until the until the end of the show. Uh, so, so let's let's start with the with the the writing process. You know, because ultimately you are you know you're, you're clearly a big Welsh rugby fan yourself. How did you find it? Kind of going through going through all of these, not just you know living it as a fan, but also looking at the detail and looking at those constant stream of mistakes. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting. So, so kind of for obvious reasons came around came about because of the issues that were afflicting the game, especially the end of last year and, and early this year. Mm. Um, and so when it went, uh, essentially I've been blogging for a few years, and so I was approached by uh, on, the, on the Grad Rugby site, and I was approached by a, by a publisher who just just wanted to talk about whether I'd be interested in doing something and how I would go about it. So. And what I wanted to, to try and do really is because um, so much of what's happened over the over the last 40 years is kind of contested. So people have different memories of how things yeah. happened or different opinions about how things happened. Um, and and that kind of shapes the way that people look at the way the game needs to develop now. So I found it really interesting that, um, you know, there were, there were, and I've mentioned this before, but there were a, a slew of books and, and and videos, I think, probably back at the time, around the time of the, the WIU centenary in the early 80s, 1981, um, which looked back over the whole history of the game to that point. But then there's been nothing really since. So there's been lots of piecemeal things. There's been lots of bits in autobiographies, lots of bits in sort of retrospective, fairly long read newspaper articles, that kind of thing. But there was nothing that really summarised the whole period. So what I wanted to try and do, um, once once I was given this opportunity, really was to was to try and kind of just just go back and look at what has happened over that period, um, and to try and try, well, to try to record it essentially first of all. So um, so the process that I sort of undertook really was that I having having written for for Glad for for several years, um, I, I was able to access that archive. Um, so that was kind of a starting point. And then obviously there were links there that took me off in various different directions. So from there, I could build what I thought was a fairly comprehensive picture of what, thing, of what had actually happened. And then I wanted to add some opinion to that. So looking at the way people responded to that. And this is again from um, from, from you know, newspaper articles, online articles, books, autobiographies, and so on. Um, and then it was a case then of adding some interviews to it as well, just to kind of flesh it out. Um, so what, I've, what, I, so what I'm, I hope that it does is that it provides, so it's for pe- people will clearly be able to pick holes in my interpretation of why things happened, um, because you know, everybody has an opinion, um, and mine is no more correct than anybody else's, but I hope that it at least sets out sort of factually and fairly clearly what actually happened over that period. So, so that, you know, the period of the game going prof- uh, professional and what happened there and the pro- problems that the clubs faced. The, um, the the you know, the the push towards uh, reducing the number of clubs um, or forming regions or what was what was going to happen and then of course you had the regions formed and then all of the fallout from that closure of the categories all of these things so I wanted to try and just record it really so that people could pick it up and think right this is reasonably trustworthy it's very accurate um, there are, 23 pages of references in the back of the book because I was, I was covering myself as, as I went to make sure if anybody quibble, I could say, well, you know, this it was said, this was said, you know, that it, or there is kind of uh, something to, to back up my opinion here. Um, so, yeah, so it was, it was a really interesting um, uh, process. It was, it was really quick, actually, because we had to, um, I was approached at the end of February, which was, it was the week after the England game. Yeah. Well, obviously, as you know, that nearly didn't, nearly didn't go ahead. 
and um, and we published it straight after pretty much straight after the World Cup final. So it was a pretty pretty full on kind of few months really. Yeah, I, I think what um, without getting into kind of a, a full on review of the book, I, I will thoroughly recommend it to anyone who's uh, who's looking to to delve deeper into these things. Um, but one thing I think you do really really well is it's an objective look, you know, so while there are opinions and, and summaries in there, it's, it doesn't appear to be clouded by, you know, by any parochialism or which, you know, uh, unlike, unlike many of the stories in there, uh, it's not clouded by parochialism or, or, you know, or being one-eyed or anything like that. It is an objective look at here's what's happening here, what I think the, the consequences may have been. And I think often at times that is, that's arguably the most difficult thing to do when it, when it comes to Welsh rugby, because we all have our, uh, you know, we all have our, our kind of biases and um, yeah, and allegiances and things like that. And it can be very hard to leave them at the door when you're trying to be objective. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, but I was very conscious too that um, other than people who read the blogs on Glad and a few people that I, I follow or they follow me on Twitter, nobody knew who I was. So, yeah. So for a, an unknown to suddenly start pontificating and telling people what he thought would would look a bit odd, you know. And I had to, so I had to try and be conscious of that. So which was which kind of drove me in, into this um, approach of trying to record things, as you say. And I'm, I'm grateful for your comments there because that's what I was trying to do is to is to try and, and and present what I think happened factually and dispassionately, um, so that it is a record, you know. Um, so so yeah, it. it I mean, the, it's kind of driven by by who I am or who I'm not, and um, you know I'm not a, not a name journalist or a player or, or anything else of that ilk. So, but but I hope hope that it is a kind of a, a useful record for people that they will be able to you know, to read and reflect on and think. Well, I don't agree with with what this person said here, but at least a recognition that that you know events happened in the way that they're set out in the book. Yeah, absolutely. And and when you were undertaking that task, was there anything that really kind of stood out as a as a surprise or that was very different to what your to what your recollection of events was? Um it, it's difficult to say. I think I mean so I've had quite a bit of feedback on the book and a lot of it is oh my god, I've forgotten about that. And mm. <laughs> it's completely oh yeah, this happened like oh god, yeah. Um, or it's even worse than I thought. That those kinds of responses, you know, it was like, oh my god, what we've done. There's a, there's a review on um, things on Goodreads that is something I've done. I mean, this blog, this review must be from Swansea, I think, because he said I was absolutely tamping by the time I'd finished reading this. <laughs> so it was um, quite um, gratifying because that's exactly exactly what I was looking for. Um, but yeah, but it is it is you know a kind of a, a challenge to to try and. To try and do that, you know. So, um, yeah. So, that, but but really, I think think the, the overall message that comes out of the book and out of the research that I did is that nothing has really changed, you know, over yeah. over the past forty years. Um, you know, I took nineteen eighty as a starting point because it was the centenary, but also because it was the end of the golden era. It was the point at which, or the crowning years, or the point at which rugby wheels started to decline at national level, then club level, and then it's been a kind of a battle since. You know, it was kind of the last time that Wales led the world you know we had these conferences and we were telling people what we were doing and we were explaining how how brilliant we were you know, in, in welsh rugby um and so really the, the the challenge then is to well the challenge then was to was to try and tease out what actually happened and it it is it's just kind of a, it's an endlessly repeating cycle of events really that you'd have somebody would try to uh, change things or develop things and then there'd be a, a reaction to that and then people would retrench, and then somebody else would come in and try and push a little bit, and then there'd be a reaction. Um, 
it is uh, I think you mentioned earlier there that there's there's a lot of parochialism um in in the in some of the actions that are that are uh, addressed in the book um and that certainly is the case you know there's there's endless reports and some some of them I've quoted of um your newspaper reports contemporary newspaper reports where the reporter would say well basically at this particular WRU meeting, this AGM or EGM or whatever, everybody voted for whatever suited them at the time. You know, the, the major clubs wanted uh, more money for themselves. You know, the, the clubs that were just slightly uh, um, under that kind of level, they wanted an opportunity to get the big money. The community clubs wanted to bring everybody down a peg or two. The committee wanted to maintain its power and its influence. Um, and it, it is really that way. Really. It's, it's that it is just... Nothing's really changed over 40 years. I'm quite hopeful um, in the early stages, at least, that, that we maybe have an opportunity of turning the corner now. But but essentially, for 40 years, probably for 140 years, the union's been run by, you know, old white men in, you know, ill-fitting blazers and you know, who are basically looking looking after themselves quite often. Um, and uh, it was just the kind of the crushing kind of inevitability of, of the latest catastrophe, you know, that uh, that they would inevitably follow. And yeah, I mean, obviously, you mentioned the 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 lack of different voices in there. You know, you've got lots of people looking out for themselves, of course. But I suppose the 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 recent changes in structure and that kind of uh, kind of decoupling of the the professional and the um, and the and the community game. Mm-hmm. That's something that that kind of that runs throughout, doesn't it? The the way that the game turned professional, but was still was still essentially being governed by the interests of of the, of, of of an amateur era and of clubs that were that were largely amateur. How much do you think that that things will change with that change in structure and with the changes that there have been in terms of personnel at the union? Um, I think it's, it's quite it's too early to tell, I guess, um, in terms of the personnel. Um, but in terms, because, you know, the, the new chief executive isn't even in place yet. She's starting in the new year, as I understand it. Um, but the new chair is in place. The new board is in place. Um, they seem to be better equipped in terms of their range of experiences, range of skills. They'll be able to better challenge the executive. Um, so that's that's encouraging, I think. That's something to, to hold on to because that's not something that we've had previously. You know, while... while um, the, the, the chair was, or the chairman, because it was always a man, um, was elected by the members, by the member clubs, essentially. And I think there's a quote from Ray Williams, I think, um, either in the in the reading that I did, or I don't think it's in the book, about the nature of the representatives from the clubs that changed in his time. So he was obviously involved as a, the coaching organiser in the 60s, um, and then became the secretary in the 80s of the WIU, which at the time was the, you know, the senior position. Um, and you know there weren't representatives from the big clubs there by that stage. It was kind of carved up by community clubs, which which is understandable because you know, most of the rugby clubs of Wales are community clubs, and you can understand why why they would want to do that. Um, but it didn't help the um, you know maintain a kind of a, an overall vision for the game, and I think that's an issue, isn't it? That there there have been attempts to develop strategies over the years. Um, I think most recently, I think Gareth Davis and Martin Phillips tried to develop one about five, six, seven years ago, which started to be implemented, but then got shelved. And then, you know, obviously, for, for exactly understandable reasons, COVID hit and, and all of all of the uncertainty that, that that unleashed. But there hasn't been that, that overall strategic vision uh, and ambition at the union um, for years. 
And that's something that the new chair and the new chief executive have said that they want to address first of all, is really encourage you know, when when the report, um, the Rafferty report came out a couple of weeks ago into the you know the culture, the toxic culture of the union over the last few years, um the the soon to be chief executive um was was interviewed and she said that um, one of the things she really wanted to do and the first things she wanted to do was to really take a view of of what um, what needed to be done in Welsh rugby to get a strategy in place and then to implement it. So that was that's really the driver. So they're making a lot of the right noises. It isn't. It doesn't seem to be a kind of a power play or you know a tug of war between various factions about who's got control of what. Um, there does seem to be more of a um, an element of, of sort of grown upness about it of, of understanding that we are in trouble. We are kind of somewhere near rock bottom, or we might not be there yet. Um, but that we need to act quickly to try and turn the corner. So, it, it, I mean, time will tell. But it, but it's it's looking more positive, I think, at the moment than it has for a while. Yeah, I hope you, I hope you're right on that. And I suppose that's the other thing is that perhaps the surprising thing to me is that you can, if not understand, you can perhaps see why mistakes were repeated if you had kind of a heavy amateur influence as the game was trying to turn professional. I suppose the thing that's that's perhaps most disturbing is that you had this toxic culture, you know, as, as recently as this year, um, was allowed to pervade in a in an organization that had in itself been professional uh since nineteen ninety five. You know, that's not about clubs having their say and things. That is an organization from top to bottom which had been you know, had been is, is appointing its own independent people. So the fact that that was allowed to pervade through there, I think, is really is really telling on on the state that the union has has been in for some time. Yeah, I think I think there are a number of things there. That, that as you say, you know, the, the the game has been professional since 1995. The administration of it only really went professional in about 2002 when mm. David Moffat was appointed as the first in the you know, group chief executive, the first officer, as opposed to treasurer or secretary or an honorary post of that of that nature um and and you know really um the the structures that were in place they weren't able to challenge you know there there are some horror stories in the in the Rafferty report which um which kind of summarize it really so there's there's a line which is right near the front of the report which is a, an anonymous uh, quote by um I'm not sure if it's a member of staff or a member of the board I can't remember but they say that essentially the board, there were several members of the board who didn't want to ask questions because they knew that if they got the answer they expected they would get, they wouldn't know what to do with the answer. Mm. They just didn't. They just didn't have the skills. They didn't have the abilities to hold the executive to account. So if you've got a, um, an organisation like that, where first of all you've got an executive that is entirely um, in the debt of the club, so they can be thrown out pretty much at any time. So they keep the smaller clubs happy, the community clubs happy, which means that community clubs put people on the board who aren't really equipped to challenge the executive. Then you have this culture then that, that can develop and did develop in the WIU's case where you had an executive who weren't challenged adequately and a culture developed which clearly was was unhealthy and you know it's, it's described as toxic, it's described as vindictive um, in, in the Rafferty report. You know, and And as you say, this isn't... The 60s or the 70s. This is yeah. you know, 1960s or 1970s. This is the 2010s and and early 2020s. Um, and it's and it's alarming that it's taken this long for these stories to emerge. Yeah, no, it it really is, and obviously that's a a huge priority of the 
you know the, of the new um of the new individuals and the and the new kind of collective executive is to is to root out all of those problems and, and really kind of get to to grips and address them and, and of, of course it is worth noting that Welsh rugby is not alone in facing these in these kind of um huge existential crises you know we've seen we've seen it in cricket uh you know and another ongoing one with Essex at the moment as well so there are it's by no means um unique but um it is you know there's there's no denying the scale of it um I wanted to talk about um in the first part of the show by talking about the club rugby and in particular um at the end of the 90s the kind of ongoing um the ongoing kind of flirtations and and possibilities of of joining um of joining a kind of anglo welsh league was keen to to get you to kind of um give your thoughts on on that as a how real um an opportunity it was and b how much of a missed opportunity that could have been um in terms of b it was massive it was a huge missed opportunity um and this isn't to decry the, the standard of rugby in, in the urc or the Celtic league that preceded it you know there are Lots of very strong teams in that league, um, but you know um, I'm old enough to remember those regular cross-border clashes um, between Welsh and English clubs that went on for years. You know, I mean, when I, when I was a kid, um, every Easter I'd be down, I'd be taken down to St Helens to watch yeah. the Harlequins game on Easter Saturday, and then the Barbarians on the Monday. And um, you know, the Llanelli Bath game was always a fixture. We'd always go and watch that. So these were big games. That meant something, you know. There, there was a history there, um, like hundred year plus history, um, and we lost those when leagues came in in the late eighties in England and in 1991 in, in Wales. And there was, an, there was, I think, I, I, I genuinely think there was a genuine opportunity in 98, 99 to re-establish that. Um, you know, as we remember, and it's, it's sort of retold in the in the book that um, the uh, the union. Well, the, the clubs essentially got themselves into all sorts of financial problems, and that wasn't necessarily the fault of the union. They they gave loans yeah. at, the, at the inception of, of professionalism, and they tried to support the clubs. So they were buying shares in the clubs, and they were, you know, in the case of Clashley, they bought Stratty Park and leased it back. Um, they took over Neath when Neath went to the wall and ran that as a kind of a an in-house operation, essentially. Um, and then we had the signing of the loyalty agreements, and that's where a lot of the issues that we are still wrestling with now came from, which is the signing of this this ten year loyalty agreement, which the union insisted the clubs should sign, which was essentially to bind the eight clubs in the Premier Division at the time to um, to playing in WIU sanctioned competition only uh, for the next ten years. Um, but I think, I mean, again in the book, I mean, I, I spoke to um, to Gareth Davis, who's kind enough to give me some time to. To sort of pick his brains, really, because obviously he's somebody who was there as a player in the seventies and eighties, and was there as an administrator in the nineties, and then um, an administrator at the union level as a chair in the in the twenty tens. Um, so he was very keen to to explore those opportunities. Um, he didn't feel, and and there, you know, there's clear evidence to support this, that the people at the union weren't commercially savvy enough. So I think he kind of suggested that they had some serious people on the board in Cardiff at the time, and you know, seriously wealthy business people who had made successes of their businesses, and they didn't want to sign up to an, to an agreement with mm-hmm. with the Welsh Rugby Union because they didn't think that the the union was up to it, and clearly you know it wasn't. Um, and so we had the essentially Cardiff and Swansea refused to sign the agreement, and they left and played a season of um, 
essentially friendly matches with, with uh, what was then the Alley Dunbar um, Premiership in England. Um, and for the first half of the season, those were really successful games. They were, you know, big crowds, 10,000, 14,000 people turning up to watch games. Um, they were competitive, they were compelling, they were televised, and, and this was working well. And then they tailed off towards the second half of the season because the English clubs had to concentrate on, on their competition and their, their actual official league because these games were unofficial. But in that January, January 1999, there was a genuine opportunity. So Cardiff and Swansea were essentially part of the English um, Premier Division delegation at a meeting at Tewkesbury. Um, and uh, they were asked what, how many clubs they thought um, the WIU would accept in an Anglo-Welsh league. Um, they suggested a figure, the, um, the WIU delegation, which was Glamour Griffiths and Terry Cobner walked in, um, were asked how many they wanted. They said 10, they were offered five and they walked out. And um, from that point, it hasn't really been a realistic um, opportunity well, there hasn't been a realistic opportunity for that to re-emerge. It's such a pity because, you know, um, within three or four years, we were down to five and then four clubs anyway. You know, so we so we threw away that opportunity in 1999. Um, it never came back. And within three or four years, we were in the same position, but we were playing in a league with which we had no previous affiliation. We never played regular fixtures with Irish and Scottish clubs, let alone Italian and South African clubs. Um, so it's such a, such a frustration because... A lot of the issues that we face now are, are you know, do stem from that decision, um, and then of course, rolling on a couple of years, which we might come on to later, the, the reason that the union weren't able to impose their vision of whatever they wanted in two thousand and two three, whether it was regions or whatever it was, was because of the loyalty agreement. They were completely bound by it. So that that agreement in ninety seven ninety eight really has cast a shadow over the game in Wales for for pretty much the twenty five years since. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it was fascinating to to relive that stuff. And again, for me, that was I, I don't know whether it was because of the the age I was at the time, or perhaps I just wasn't interested in the the political side of things. You know, I might have read the odd fleeting headline about it, but to read that in detail, I think was one of the most fascinating parts. And you know, again, any regular listeners will know I kind of bang on about there being an opportunity or how, how much a, a conceptual opportunity with with teams in England I could see there being um and just to, to realize kind of how much of a of an actual chance there was of it happening and um and to kind of be yeah to have refused it and then as you say ended up a couple of years later but with the same the same number of teams in a competition that was never going to have the same um the same buy-in from from fans or really uh from from commercial entities as well is yeah it made for um for real eye-opening read uh, we're going to carry on talking about club rugby and uh, we're going to do that after a very quick break so don't go anywhere Right, let's um let's fast forward a couple of years then, Sai, from uh from ninety eight, ninety nine. And as you say, it, it wasn't it wasn't many seasons later and the uh the regionalism uh regionalization of Welsh rugby took place and I mean again it would go down as one of the one of the messiest uh messiest parts of the um of the book and even by Welsh rugby standards that's that's kind of saying something. Um as you say, so much of that was tied to the uh, was tied to the loyalty agreements. Um, looking forward, though, do you see you know what, how do how much of a future do you see for uh, for regional rugby within Wales? You know, because we've had you know you've had the the cut 
number of teams there. You've had versions of of regions in various different incarnations. Um, how much of a future do you see for for regional rugby within within Wales? Um, at, at the moment, um, it's all looking pretty bleak, isn't it? It's you know we, we're in a in a situation at the moment where. And again, you know, I wouldn't want to, to throw all of the blame at the union. You know, the, the 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 four professional teams weren't weren't really performing anyway over the last couple of years, um, and then of course we hit this financial issue, and budgets have been cut, and they're performing worse, and our budgets are going to be cut again next year. So we're talking about you know squad squad salary um, squad sort of caps salary caps going down from about six and a half million at, at some regions a couple of years ago. To four and a half next year, unless something changes in the interim, which which it may, but we don't know. Um, so, so it, we, I think we have to accept that those clubs won't be competitive. Those for those four teams won't be competitive um, over the next couple of years. Um, the, the challenge really then is going to be: Will people stay engaged? Will supporters stay engaged with these clubs, and therefore will sponsors stay engaged? Um, I think I listened to. Um, to, to this podcast, and I think there's an addition from a couple of weeks ago, where you were talking about um, crowd numbers, you know, attendances, and especially the Ospreys that they they mm-hmm. really seem to be struggling. You know, I think I think on Saturday, I think they you know they had a home European game, all right, it was in the Challenge Cup, but it was I think it was a ten or a ticket, and they had a crowd of about three thousand in a in a twenty thousand seat stadium, you know, which is which is really worrying. Um, you know, the Scarlets aren't, and the Scarlets are my team, but they're not faring much better um, on the pitch or, or in terms of attracting crowds. So it, it, it is a difficulty, I think, in in foreseeing how that interest would be um, would be maintained because we have seen over the years, regardless of the issues around, you know, whether these are clubs or regions or franchises or what are they, that people will turn out to support those entities, whatever they are, when they're successful and when they're playing well yeah. and they're playing in meaningful matches. So, you know, we, we remember that the, the, the Scarlet had their little purple patch of a couple of years, about five or six years ago, um, you know, won the Pro 12 at the time, reached the Pro 14 final the next year, got to the European Champions Cup semi-final, which is almost impossible to believe at the moment that a Welsh club was in, was in that, that stage of the tournament so recently. Um, and they were averaging crowds of over ten thousand, so it is possible. You know, the, the Ospreys beforehand were, were averaging crowds of ten, twelve thousand. Um, Cardiff too at, at, at times, um, but it, yeah, it, it's it's very difficult to see um, how the corner is turned. Really, I mean, I think there did need to be a reset because my understanding is that some of the salaries being paid by Welsh clubs, Welsh regions, were higher than their equivalents in, in England. So that was kind of unsustainable. We couldn't afford to do that. And the model which the union had put into to try and encourage players to stay at home and to encourage Welsh clubs to buy Welsh players and to keep them at home um, had unintended consequences of just, just pushing you know, wage inflation up, which has caused a lot of this issue. So it is possible within a couple of years, if we can settle things down again, if we can reset and get players on something that is more of a sustainable salary and maybe accept that the top... 10, 20, 25 players won't be playing in Wales anymore. But there may be an opportunity for the regions to, to reset. Now, whether that's as the four entities that we know now, whether it will be a smaller number, whether it will be a relocated region somewhere, North Wales or Ealing or whatever, mm-hmm. um, it's impossible to tell at the moment. But um, I, don't think, I don't think the future of, of, of 
Welsh domestic rugby has ever looked quite this uncertain. Uh, not not in my lifetime, anyway. No, I, I think you're right, and but you, you do again. You, you address this really well in the book. Is that it's very easy to paint the narrative of just going the the unions are underfunding the regions, and look, there is there is that argument to be made. Yeah. But at the same time, you're absolutely right that you have to. I think you have to recognise that there is a consequence of them being neither one thing nor the other. This is not an Irish-style provincial state of union-owned model, whereby you could, you know, you're putting the money into that and you know you'll reap the rewards. There is still that that you know, or there has been that friction between who should pick up the bulk of the the players' wages. You know, should you be investing in these players if you're only going to get access to them every now and again as a as a region? So, and, and also you're right, the um, the overinflation both parties need to take a look at that whether it's from the overinflated um pricing structure that that led to, to welsh players being um being kind of i don't want to say overpaid but you know in market terms being being overpaid or it's money that had been spent perhaps on um on journeyman you know journeyman um non-welsh qualified players who um who you know perhaps just just weren't quite good enough i think that there has to be that recognition that it wasn't working but it's going to be incredibly tough on the budgets that that, that they've got now i suppose that the green shoots have come in terms of the way some of the younger players have have stood up in recent weeks you know i, I think all of the um all of the regions would be able to point to some of their young homegrown talent and 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 perhaps say that they they might not have had that opportunity if there was a more experienced player there, um, which you'd hope is something that that fans can buy into because we do you know that that is hopefully something that um, or maybe it's just me kind of being overly romantic about it, but you'd love to think that you know watching sides full of young homegrown talent has its has its own draw, um, but I do think it has to be coupled with meaningful rugby. No one's expecting a side you know uh, fifteen. 15 players from Cardiff to go and to go and win the league but if you've got a squad that's full of players from Cardiff that's 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 playing in rugby that kind of means something and performing you know and giving you performances you can be proud of you'd still hope that there's something to get behind that I just don't ever see there being that situation in the URC when you're playing against the Stormers or Connacht or sides where there's not really that that history of um of rivalry or a number of away fans so it's never going to feel like an event and I think I've kind of crammed an awful lot of, of waffle into that bit, but you get where I'm coming from. It's the, it's the bits that you can that you can kind of latch onto as a fan, and, and I just think that they're the things that we're going to have to get hold of if if there's going to be uh, you know a proper future for for these regions in their current form. Yeah, I, I think um, I mean not not that we, we want to sort of waffle on too much about kind of tradition and and, and what always used to happen and and you know the good old days because you know the. For most people under the age of thirty, they they won't know any different. You know, mm. they won't know about the the, the the club days of old. But but I think Wales was always a club orientated uh, rugby culture, mm. as was England, as was France. There were obviously clubs playing in Ireland and and Scotland, but but when um, and again, so I think so. You were talking a couple of weeks ago, I think. Again, one of your episodes where you talked to um, James Stafford and Steve Coombs who brought up the Blethyn uh, um, comic um, graphic novel, and and they were talking about, and or you were all talking about how special those games were because the, the, yeah. you know, how, how you man, managed, how you measured yourself in those days without leagues, without cups, even in nineteen fifty three, was these games against New Zealand and South Africa, especially in Australia to an extent. Um, 
and that that really meant something. And so, so, so clubs sort of held on to that. So when Wales welcomed the tour from one of these countries, they, it was clubs that played them. When these nations went to Ireland or Scotland, it was amalgamations that played them, or in Ireland's case, the, the provinces that we know now. So they have that history. They've been able to build on history that they had. We opted to essentially throw it sort of on the fire, essentially, 20 years ago, um, and said we need to get away from this and we have to do something else because, you know, we had all of these clubs, all these first-class clubs within a 60-mile band and you know, 60 by 20 miles or whatever it was. Um, everybody hated the, the club down the road, so nobody was ever going to come together. So we essentially had to say, right, we've, we've, these are regions and they don't mean anything. They, they don't exist really as, as, as anything you've known before. This is entirely new and you have to get behind it. But the union had neither the money nor the legal case nor anything else to be able to push that through. So we ended up with amalgamations of clubs, essentially. Um, and I think when things get difficult, I think that having that kind of sense of belonging is something that keeps people coming back to the club to support them. And I don't think, even though we're 20 years in, that the regions have quite developed that. So it, it would seem in terms of the, the, the crowd numbers we were talking about earlier, the region that's, that's kind of been affected most by this is, is the Ospreys, which is a genuine mm-hmm. merger of clubs. And of course, Bridgend came in a bit later as well when the Warriors went. The, Warriors went. the other three are a little bit more robust because there is that, that history there, you know, the Cardiff Blues, Cardiff Rugby, whatever, they're Cardiff. It's the same team that beat the All Blacks in 1953. You know, the, the Scarlets, they're the same team that beat the All Blacks in 1972. Um, and likewise, you know, for, for the Dragons, really. You know, <laughs> although I represent- mean, for many, for many, many years. And then, you know, even in recent times, they're wearing black and amber on the pitch this this yeah. year. You know, it is... It is um, and again, that, that, that almost highlights another part of the problem, doesn't it? Is that... In you know, in the case of, in the case of the dragons, where they moved away from that kind of Newport yeah. Newport essence for for large chunks, it's neither been one thing nor the other. Because you know, I think there'll be a lot of people to start with who were were alienated because of the over Newportness, and a lot of people who are disgruntled. Well, certainly they're the loudest voices that you, that you will hear, hear in the debate is that they were disgruntled because it wasn't you know it wasn't Newport enough, and it didn't embrace the the the, the culture. And you know, I, I believe it's at one point when the when the side almost went to the wall in 2017, there's boxes and boxes of of that amazing memorabilia from Newport's history that's just kind of kicking around. And if you are a Newport RFC fan still, you know I can see why there would be there would be struggle to to have that allegiance, particularly when you you know the, the side that has played there throughout or throughout its history until recently is now playing at, at Spitty Park. You know it's yeah. um it's a it's a it is a tribal sport, you know, sport in its essence is tribal and, and those things are, are gonna um are gonna cause some grievances. But the thing that, that we've always kind of got to get to is there has to be a solution because otherwise you lose everything. You lose yeah. absolutely everything. And like you say, if there were if there was a Cardiff game against the All Blacks at some point. Now I know this this will never happen again now, particularly the money that you know we're lucky to get a Wales versus All Blacks game at, at certain points. <laughs> um but if there was a fixture like that or you know something that meant something people would be all over it because of yeah. the, the the magnitude of what it still means. And um, and I, I don't know, I, I just think sometimes I, I am a traditionist in the sense that I love lots of rugby's traditions, but I'm also a realist. And I think that you've got to, you've got to look at those different things and say, right, okay, we, we're never going to get the Cardiff versus um, the All Blacks again, but is there something 
that that can recreate that that feeling and i do think some of these weird things of club sides playing take for example if you were to have a cardiff versus portugal game um at some point in the near future right portugal would love that um because it'd be an opportunity to to play against some um uh you know against a, a famous a famous club side they're the kind of the the young exciting sexy new rugby nation i think there would be interest within within cardiff for it as well um Arguably, I'd say more interest than there is for for your standard URC fixture, um, but there's just too much rugby. There's too much. Um, there's too much rugby being played that that just has very little consequence in a league where there's no relegation, and you you know you're going to be sat around languishing at the bottom of it. So there need yeah. there needs to be solutions that that are actually found somewhere. Yeah, I mean, it's very um, tempting to just kind of <laughs> sit here like sort of, you know grumpy old man in the corner of the pub and just say, well, you know this used to be much better than this, didn't it? And mm. uh, it, to a large extent, it did. I mean, what, what and, and it's partly as a consequence of the nature of the game of rugby anyway, and the, the physical nature of it, in that you can't have any more those, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Saturday, mm. Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday fixtures that you used to have. Um, you know, the old merit table clubs, you know, clubs would play 40, 50 games a season, you know. Um, that, that is impossible. You can't do that, you know, even if there were people coming in and out of the team. Um and you and, and you lose that rhythm. You know, when I was when I was a kid and I grew up sort of in the in the west of Swansea, really, sort of halfway between Swansea Cleckley, um, my dad used to take me to the game, whatever the game was, and it might be in Stradley, it might be St. Helens, it might be the Vetch, it might be the Knoll. So it might be football occasionally. Um but but there was a game, so we could like every Saturday we could go to a as it was known then, first class game. Um, and of course, that is impossible. It, it, in this in this era of, of rugby, it is impossible. You know, I mean, in the in the in the book, I refer to a conversation between Mike Ruddock, sorry, no, Roger Blythe, uh, who was uh, at Swansea at the time. Um, this is pre regionalisation, and David Moffat, and and you know, Moffat just came up to him and said, "Well, look, you know, New Zealand have got five pro clubs, so why do you think Wales can afford nine? You know, how can Wales field nine professional clubs? So we can't do that. So we can't have." all of these town clubs playing each other at that kind of level anymore because it isn't possible. We can't play all of those games. We need, we have to have a smaller number of clubs. We have to have a smaller number of games as well. And what that kind of leads to is a complete loss of regularity and rhythm. There's no rhythm to the season. You know, if you're, if you're a Cardiff City fan or a Swansea City fan, you mm-hmm. know that every other Saturday pretty much, you may be moved a bit for TV now and again, but pretty much every other Saturday at three o'clock you're at home. Um, and you can get on a bus and get to an away game in a few hours. So they've got that regularity. We don't have that anymore in rugby, and we probably can't have it anymore, given the nature of the game, given the issues around player safety, player welfare, and all the rest of it. Um, so we have to try and find a way around that. We, we have to create, as you were saying there, meaningful matches, meaningful competitions, things that people want to see. Um, and unfortunately, I mean, Europe seems to be waning in its attractiveness. Mm. Um, the URC isn't attractive to most most supporters. Um, it's it, uh, but it's a struggle to see how you develop something that would work. You know, I think we had a chance twenty five years ago. We blew that. That chance isn't coming back because England is struggling as well. The English clubs are struggling now. But I don't know what what the way forward would be because you know, as I say, that the game is is struggling. It is in trouble, not just in Wales but in a number of other countries. Um, and it really needs to to get a, get a hold of it. But something like you know bringing Portuguese teams, Georgian teams, whatever, Romanian, you know, Uruguayan, Chilean, all that kind of thing would be something that would be, that would give a bit of bit of glamour and a bit, something a bit different to, to the fixture list. 
Yeah, it's just you know, obviously these are the thoughts that fly uh, fly into my head at, at certain points. But it is that yeah, it, it is that that meaningful thing that I just think is is the key to it because if the answer seems to have been, and this this applies to the international game as well, for far too long the answer has just been we're running short of money, we're not growing as much as we want to, we need to play more games, and yeah. that was at capacity years ago and has just continued yeah. to get worse. So there there isn't that opportunity to do you know to to add any more fixtures to it but it's you know it is about finding a league system that, that's going to work and you're right the, the the last 10 years of european rugby has has definitely seen that competition diminish i can't quite put my finger on why i think look, in recent years the tinkering with the format has made things worse i would say so again that's something that isn't necessarily exclusive to to welsh rugby there are other um other professional governing bodies making those mistakes and the tinkering of that, I don't think has helped in the slightest bit. Um, the TV coverage has been, you know, historically, again, it, although it was behind a paywall, it was all, you know, once the BBC lost their last bit of it, it was all on Sky. So you knew where to find it. And also Sky would market it heavily. So they would, you know, it would be part of their marketing campaign to get more subscriptions. It would have the Heineken Cup front and centre for any rugby fans. You know, again, if you're watching promos on other Sky channels you will see the Heineken Cup as part of that and where, again where it gets broken up and goes to BT and bits and pieces in other in other places I think you lose that and again you know if you have something behind a paywall for a long period of time you're only ever going to really going to kind of shrink the the number of fans who are interested in it um because it's not readily available so so Europe, Europe is a big problem, and and again, I don't think the South African, the South African sides up the quality definitely. Of course yeah. they do, but again, you don't have that um, that geographical tribal nature, and that's I think what was great about um, about the the original versions of it um, was you had the opportunity to play French and English and Irish and, and Scottish clubs and you weren't playing them on a regular basis. So it meant it meant something there. Whereas, you know, right now you've got half of that competition all playing the same league anyway. And yeah, and it's a Europe originally a European competition that now has South African sides in, so it's lost that. It's it's very difficult to know how to sell it, isn't it? You know, to, to someone. It's you know, you're you're selling it off the back of the sponsor's name rather than selling it off the back of it being European because it, it's not anymore. Yeah, yeah. And it, it it was, you know, I mean there was some, there were problems with the initial um Heineken Cup, but but as you said there, you know, you had essentially all of the competing nations or the major competing nations, essentially the five nations, plus plus Italy in the, in the, before they joined. Um, they all played in their own domestic league. So when they played in Europe, it was yeah. something new and glamorous and exciting. And it was it was rugby's equivalent of the Champions League. And it was and it was really, you know, and it was exciting. And you had the mini leagues, obviously. So you had a pool table where you had everybody would play home and away. So you had a kind of internal coherence. Um there were, there were kind of an odd number of clubs, so you ended always ended up with group winners going through, and then some of the runners up, but not all of them going through. So yeah. it, was always, it was always kind of you know back in those days, it was you know if we draw an Italian team, you're okay. It might be a draw draw a Welsh team now if um, mm. I was revisited, but um, but there was a coherence to it, and as you say, it was either on the BBC initially or it was all on Sky, and and I was looking at something last week because I was trying to find the Scarlets game, so I've only been able to watch highlights of the Scarlets game because. It wasn't on anywhere, you know. So there, there are seven broadcasters. Um, I think, I think, I think I'm right in saying across the continent, seven broadcasters, um, all showing different bits, you know. And and some of the games weren't on any of these broadcasters, but they were on the CPR website, and you had to buy 
um, a pass per game. So it wasn't, you know, you buy, like, spend a tenner and watch all of the games. It was kind of eight quid a game, you know, so... Um, yeah, so it's um, it's difficult to, to keep on keep in touch with everything, isn't it? Because it's all kind of hidden away. It's all behind the paywall. None of it is free. Well, there's, there's the odd game on ITV, but you know, it's 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 the same that the cricket's finding, isn't it? Really, that cricket took the money twenty years ago off the back of this huge success, the Ashes of two thousand and five, um, and it's kind of just disappeared, isn't it? The, the game of cricket has just kind of disappeared to nothing, you know, and. And there's and again there's there's you know within the domestic game the county championship game or the county game there's no coherence there you don't know who's playing who you know which tournament is which you know where, where are these players from um, you know it's um, I think my worry really is that rugby's for some reason looked at cricket and thought yeah that's a good idea let's do that um, and I don't think it is <laughs> no I, and I don't think any of those lessons have been learned you know and I suppose at least in rugby in cricket's case on the global sense you have a commercial powerhouse in India, which means that things like the IPL have been a huge commercial success because you've launched something that a form of cricket that didn't take eight, at least eight hours. Um, and you're able to launch that with some massive names in a country of a billion people who largely all love cricket. And it's worked and it's been a fantastic success and they've rolled it out. But again, administrators in England missed the boat on that. They invented the, four, the T20 form of cricket didn't yeah. trademark it, and it ended. You know, it was treated as a bit of a, a knockabout thing as to start with, and it's you know, it's in the last few years that they've had to to tinker and create something as ludicrous as the hundred and have to yes. pump millions upon millions into trying to get people interested in in it. And fine, you know, there are things that it has right, and it's helped the women's game and and give that given that a good platform. And uh, there is some free to air TV coverage and. But they've had to, you know, they've had to invent another form of the game when there's already three versions of cricket. It's, you know, it, it, none of that made sense. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know why you would look at cricket as being a, you know, a successful model. But you're right. Rugby seems to seems to be making those mistakes because it is about kind of chasing the short term, uh, the short term money that a, a paywall offers. And again, you, you know, we debated this with Paul Reese the other night that the vultures, uh, you know, or the uh, sorry, that sounds wrong, um, but certainly the uh, the metaphorical vultures of uh, of pay TV will be circling around the Six Nations every time that that comes up for that comes up for renewal, and there's a real danger this time that you could be losing that from from our screens as well, or certainly losing a chunk of it. And given what's what it's done to the club game, that cannot be a good thing for the sport in the long run. No, no, it's re- it's really worrying, isn't it? Um, you know, I, I mean, looking at, at Welsh football, that disappeared behind the paywall for a bit, and. Now it's available on SOC, so international games are available on SOC. And that's kind of coincided with a, with a big, you know, good team coming through and, and the interest that that's kind of engendered in the game again. And, and so the risk is that if we all kind of disappear being a payroll, it'll become like football or cricket, you know, Welsh football or, or English cricket, um, in that nobody watches, nobody cares. Because, I mean, essentially, I mean, one of, one of the kind of recurring themes um, in the book really is that... Um, if the, the national men's team was doing well, then nobody, the most people didn't care about anything else because that, you know, the rugby was the Six Nations, essentially. That when people talked about the rugby's on, you know, it would be the Six Nations, you know. Um, and that's that's kind of the driver. Um, and if you take that away, you, you don't have that hardcore of people who will go and watch every, you know, anything. You know, you don't have that, that popularity that football has in, in the UK. Where you know there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who will go to a game, whether it's you know 
going to pay you all, whether it's on where, where it is, you know, whether it's on TV, they'll still go. Um, and if, you, if you're going to find yourself in a position where you're essentially hiding the game away, then you know the risk is that your you, you, audience is going to become smaller and smaller. It's going to contract because you're not giving yourself the opportunity to attract new people unless, as you say, you create something new as you know, IPL or the 100 or whatever um, has been created. Um, but yeah, I mean, there is a good product there, but this kind of endless tinkering within rugby, but also um, the kind of self selfishness really of the major unions um, in in getting themselves into this kind of the kind of almost kind of eating themselves essentially. <laughs> the kind of it's kind of you know, they they need more money, so they create these tournaments, which mean they need more money, which mean they need to create new tournaments, and then they need more money again. Um, and it's just a, an entirely unsustainable ecos, ecosystem, really. So, you know, the new, whatever it's called, I can't remember what it's called, the Nations Championship, or whatever it's called now, the, this, this year-long tournament. Why is everything a Nations as well? That's what I don't understand. Yes. Like, there must be something more... I know, I get that the Six Nations is a, like, you know, is a successful brand, but there must be something more imagined. It's not just because the word nation is in it. That's not the yeah. only reason that it's successful. They could just change everything to rugby championship because that seems to be that seems to be the thing a few years ago. Yeah. The Tri Nations became the rugby championship, and you've got the United Rugby Championship, and then you know it's um, yeah, it, it's yeah, and and you know the, the comment you know we had a discussion a little bit earlier about Portugal and other teams, and and you know, the worry after that World Cup that we had, which is so exciting and so colourful and so vibrant, and and it was great to see these younger uh, these newer uh, nations coming through, and some of the best games. Because they were exciting, because they were between two teams of, of different, of a similar kind of standard, were those kind of minnow games, you know, the, the you know, Portugal and Georgia games, and you know, Portugal and Fiji and so on. Um, it was amazing, and and the risk is that we lose that between World Cups, and the game becomes a staler, less interesting product. And I think what we have with um, with the domestic, and because you know we are in a domestic league in Wales with. Most of most of the countries in our kind of time zone, essentially, um, it becomes stale because it's the same old thing. It's the same old teams. There aren't any away supporters coming anyway because it's you know thousands of miles in some cases to, to the uh, for the away supporters to come, um, and it just becomes you know tedious and less interesting. And you know the thing that Wales are doing for years of playing Australia a couple of times a year you know, that was yeah. that'd be boring. You know, so people are turning up. It's it's kind of. And that, the, the international game, I think, is kind of saturated. I don't think you can squeeze any more out of that in terms of your income generation. But the game doesn't seem to have any other ideas. It doesn't seem to have any ideas about you know expanding the number of nations that play in tournaments or having some kind of league in Europe or you know league in South America or whatever um, of of nations. Um, you know, let alone sort of further developing domestic um, domestic leagues. So um, yeah, it's. We need some administrators with uh, with a bit of vision, I think, and they, they're in a bit of short supply, really. They certainly are, and uh, let's uh, yeah, as I say, we could we could go on for absolutely uh, absolutely hours talking about the issues that you that you raise in the book, but um, yeah, you have to just put that one on your your Christmas list, listeners, or uh, or yeah, buy yourself a copy, uh, and it's called Welsh Rugby: What Went Wrong by Cy Williams. And uh, what's the best way of getting hold of a copy, Cy? Um, so it's available pretty much everywhere. So it's it's available uh, direct from the publishers, which is alolva.com. Um, you can get it uh, as, a, as a Kindle or um, as an e-book from Folio Cymru um, if you don't like your Kindles. And in a paperback form, format, it's available from, you know, your Walter Stone, Smiths, um, you know, 
um, Blackwell's all sorts of bookshops, including local bookshops, certainly in Wales. So if you if you have a good local bookshop, buy it there. Support them before Christmas. Yeah. Offset the uh, offset the the bad work I did by buying the Kindle copy. Um, so uh, yeah, I would uh, I would thoroughly recommend it. Great read. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to have a chat about uh, the week's news from uh, from Wales, Europe, and beyond. And that's coming up after this quick break. Right then, so we touched on a lot of things talking about Europe there, but let's talk about some of the on the pitch, um, on the pitch goings on uh, this weekend. So we'll start. We'll start with the Ospreys because that's, uh, as you say, uh, the, despite the, the disappointing um, crowd numbers, which we, we touched on in the earlier part of the show, uh, a comprehensive victory for them. Four tries for Derry Lake, and uh, after their European campaign in the in the Champions Cup last year, that was that was so successful. How much do you think that? That they'll be targeting a really good cup run in um, in the Challenge Cup this year, especially getting getting off the mark with a win like that. It'll be tricky for for any of the Welsh regions, I think, to to target two tournaments because I guess, I mean, really the focus should be on getting into the you know the top eight in the URC. But yeah. I think the Ospreys are pretty much uniquely well equipped among the four really to to really challenge in in Europe, even the you know, even the Challenge Cup because. You know, they have a serious pack and they have serious replacements to replace the starters as well. Um, and then you could see in the game on on, on Saturday against uh, Benetton that they, you know, Benetton were, were playing expansive rugby. They were they were cutting them open at times, but the Ospreys were just so dominant up front that they, you know, essentially just kept it tight and just kept driving over from line out. You know, they were, they were clinical and they were, you know, um, pretty robust and they were pretty tough and, you know, they, 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 I think they're they're reasonably well equipped. I mean, a lot of this depends. Obviously, there are a lot of good teams um, and very very wealthy teams in the Challenge Cup uh, this year. Um, who, if they take it seriously, will, will probably have too much for any of the Welsh teams. But of the four, I think the, the Ospreys are the team that look best equipped um, to, to to do something to to get you know maybe get as far as the Scarlets last year. Maybe go maybe go a step further. Yeah, and they've got Montpellier this weekend. Uh, this one is away. Uh, but I suppose you know they'll have, they'll have good memories of of getting wins over Montpellier last uh, last season in you know in the in the bigger tournaments. So perhaps um, perhaps we'll go into that without you know without fear or trepidation. I think it'd be, they'd, they'd be quite quite keen to get stuck into that. It'll be interesting to see what Montpellier do because you know the, the, the tradition and the stereotype is is that you know um, certainly the Challenge Cup, the French clubs. Um, throw everything at the home games. Don't bother with the away games. Um, and yeah, they, they got a win though, did they, Montpellier? Yeah, <laughs> they well, quite, Newcastle yeah. away. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. You know, but it, so you've got two teams there who are really struggling, Newcastle and Montpellier, because you know Montpellier aren't doing too well this season um, either. So, so it'll be interesting to see what they do. Will they target this game as their opportunity to to do something, or will they focus on trying to you know save their keep their place in the, in the top fourteen? Really, so it'll be interesting. To see how they approach it, um, and likewise the Ospreys, um, you know whether they will send, the, the, you know as strong a team as played last week, to Montpellier this week. As you said, they, you know, they had that record in the you know the main tournament last year, where they doubled Montpellier. So you know that's something they want to um, they want to follow up. I think. Yeah, I think you're absolutely absolutely right on that, and um, yeah, I think the, the the key point there is, like you said right at the start. Fighting a war on two fronts is very, very difficult when you've got the the yeah. squads that, that these two teams have. I think of all of the of all of the 
of all of the, the the Welsh regions, the one that is, that is best equipped, not just in terms of personnel, but probably in terms of squad depth, it would be the Ospreys. So, you know, I, 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 and again, I just think it is, to go back to that point about meaningful rugby, a cup run, even in the Challenge Cup, will bring, you know, will bring people out. If you get to the knockout stages, a knockout, particularly a home knockout game, yeah. it will generate a level of interest that a home fixture against, you know, even the best sides in the, in the ORC just won't. Yeah, we saw it last year with the Scarlets, you know, and as I said, you know, at full disclosure here, I'm a Scarlets fan. Um, but, you know, the, the Scarlets had an awful start of the season last season, and I think they picked up some like nine points out of the first 50 available. It was, it was dire, you know. Um, then then they turned the corner over Christmas and then the New Year, and then they had a run at the Challenge Cup. So, you know, they had some some tremendous wins, uh, home wins as well, as you said, you know, so so they, they built that following up. So, you know, by the time of the semi-final against Glasgow, which unfortunately didn't go Scarlet's way, but you know they they were playing in front of twelve thousand people yeah. at the Scarlet, you know, and that's that's not something they would get for a run of the mill URC game. So, you know, it it creates that that feeling of wanting to be there, that it's an event that you want to go to it rather than oh, it's you know it's a bit cold, it's a bit wet, or I'll stay and watch it on the telly, you know. So, so um, yeah, I think the Ospreys are, are equipped to do it if if they, as you said, really, if they want to fight a war on two fronts, um, then. Then they they may have an opportunity if they can manage their resources um, as they as they might be able to because they do have that depth. Yeah, absolutely. I think yeah, just go back to that Scarlets game you mentioned there as well because I think there was um, a decent amount of travelling support as well uh, down from Scotland for that. Which, given that the sides compete in the league, you know, on a on a regular basis, um, is encouraging that it does still mean something to play to play knockout rugby. So for both sides, yeah, that's not to, to put a dent in those in those Scarlet's numbers. It's just great to see packed houses and 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 actually, you know, away fans adds to adds a degree of colour as well. So um yeah, I think I think there is a real opportunity for the Welsh sides to target um to target the challenge cup. Uh, unfortunately Scarlet's didn't get off to um didn't get off to a winning start uh this time round. Um Again, what do you think that will do for Dwayne Peel's um, plans this season? Because I suppose that the, the setup of the Challenge Cup means it's not all over after one game. Um, you know, whereas in previous years that that kind of might have been the case. Um, but he's had such a you know kind of such a, a struggling start to the league again. Where do you where do you place your emphasis if you're Dwayne Peel? Yeah, it's really difficult, isn't it? I mean, I mean, last year. Um... They seemed to emphasize everything, and they just started winning yeah. games. <laughs> it just turned, the corner just was turned. Um, they, obviously, Lee Blackett came in to, to support uh, Dwayne Peel, and that that obviously made a difference. Or seemed to make a difference. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the issues that the Scarlets have obviously is that um, you know the pack, the front five especially, is is really struggling and is really green, really in many ways. Um, so you know, we we ended the game in, in cast with. You know, a team that essentially could have been a an academy team. You know, there were just kids everywhere in the, in the pack. Um, you know, the overseas signings that we have in the pack weren't available. So, you know, Plumtree and Lucy and um, Fafita were were all missing, um, which doesn't help. But then it's the front five really where you really need that that bulk to to live, especially with teams like Cast because they are just a very physical, very robust team. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's a it's a it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because as you say, it's a thumping in the first game, but then you know we've got Black Lion at home next week. Don't know a great deal about them. They they would probably be quite quite tough given they're a Georgian team with lots of Georgian internationals in the team. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's an opportunity, you know, for for, for them to, to to take on some of these games. They've got Edinburgh at home as well later on in the tournament, so there's a chance in the home games. It's just they've they've somehow with this 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 weird system that they have now for the tournament. They've they've ended up with Castro and, and Claremont away, which is not ideal <laughs> if you're trying to go far in Europe. Yeah, they don't leap out. Uh, yeah, they don't leap out on paper as uh, as, as winnable games necessarily, do they? Um, <laughs> Yoan Lloyd went off with um with I think it was a shoulder injury as well, wasn't it? Um but he's definitely been a a, a bright spark um so far this season. His run of form at ten will be encouraging. Uh, if he can stay fit or you know, get get back to fitness quickly, do you think he will feature in Warren Gatland's plans or is he uh is he kind of too much of an adventurous player for um for for kind of what the way Gatland likes to play? Yeah, it'll be it'll be really interesting, wouldn't it? Because you know the 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 controlling players have kind of gone, you know, your, your biggers and your half pennies and players like this who are, you know, sensible, pragmatic players um, aren't available. So I don't know. I mean, uh, he may go back to somebody like Owen Williams, but, um, well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, selfishly, to be perfectly honest, I'd quite like Owen to have a, a spell at the Scarlets and mm. find his feet properly because I think this is probably the first time he's had an extended run at 10. Um and as you say, he does seem to be growing into it. You know, he's he's been one of the relatively few bright bright sparks really this this season so far. He's been playing really well. He's adventurous. He runs an awful lot, which, as you say, may not endear him to to Gatlin really. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd like to see him get a run. But then you know, with you know Anscombe and Bigger gone, and uh, you know Patchell's gone, and Halfpenny's not there to kick. Um, you know, Costello is injured. Don't know whether he'll be back by. By the Six Nations, if he if he is back in the Six Nations, it will be just I think it's kind of January time. I think he's due back, so he may not have played at all for months. Um, he's got to he's got to be another shout really because you know the, there isn't a great deal about um, in terms of uh, you know in terms of fly half at the moment. So you know he's he's playing well in a team that's struggling, and that's always going to do him good. I think. Yeah, no, I I think you're right. I think um, a lot of people would probably be suggesting that he's he's not likely to feature given. You know, kind of given the the structured way that that Gatland has has played for uh, you know has picked Wales sides in the past, but I don't know. I think he's just kind of impossible to ignore at the moment. He's definitely something completely different. And um, you know, if it was at a time when Anscombe and Bigger and or and or Patchell were, were still around, I think it might be a different conversation. But because you've kind of got to evolve, I, I could see a, a scenario where he's he's definitely in the squad. Um, so yeah, well, fingers crossed there. Uh, for both parties, is the injury isn't too serious. Um, and you mentioned their academy, uh, kind of a lot of uh, almost an academy side on the on the pitch at the end of the game for the Scarlets. That was pretty much the case for Cardiff throughout the whole of the uh, the whole of the fixture. Actually, a huge, huge uh, amount of youngsters playing again away at Toulouse, which is definitely not an easy fixture. The scoreline reflected what a tough assignment it was. But certainly in terms of individual performances. I think those those kids showed up really, really well, actually, and certainly didn't take a backward step or necessarily feel intimidated by the quality of the opposition they were playing. Yeah, I thought um, it, was, it, was a, it was a difficult one to, to watch, really, because I thought they, they really gave it a crack, and they, mm. you know, they were stressing to lose at times. Um, you know, they made several breaks that they couldn't quite finish off. They had several bits of possession, extended bits of possession, deep in into lose territory, which they couldn't quite finish off. Um, and really, it was kind of, you could see the, the class and the experience of Toulouse in that they 
I mean, it's, I don't know whether they had to click into the top gears really, but they were able to just click into a high enough gear to be able to to score when they needed to, and then they just kept on not scoring. And when Cardiff started falling away, but there's I think there's a lot. I mean, of, of I think the Ospreys, as I said, said earlier, they're the best equipped to do something in a serious competition. But I think Cardiff are a team that look as if they could be something in a couple of years. Yeah, you know, when these when these kids have, have got a bit of experience, they're not they're not getting smashed at the moment. You know, they're most of the games. I mean, they lost heavily, but that was Toulouse, and that was a fully loaded Toulouse. And most most teams would get smashed by a fully loaded Toulouse. Um, but they they stayed in there. You know, they kept fighting. They were still there. There are a few real. Bright sparks there. I think Mackenzie Martin looking a bit of a find. Um, I thought Delarue did okay as well, and I think yeah. um, you know the, the two fullbacks are, are very promising as well, wouldn't it? And, and beat them. So, so there's lots of obviously missing Grady again. Had a you know he's raw, but what an athlete, you know. So there's there's, there's a lot there for Cardiff to to build on. I mean, I think in many ways um, this is this could be kind of the, the the most difficult season for Cardiff, as it may be for for the Scarlets, as it kind of. They've done their culling essentially. A lot yeah. of their expensive plays have gone, so th- I think hopefully they'll have an opportunity to keep most of the squad together into next year. Um, and you know, there's there's something that to build on. I think. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree with that as well. I'm struggling to kind of um, to not get carried away with Mackenzie Martin because he looks, <laughs> he looks. I mean, to to get go go forward ball in a game like that against against Toulouse. You know, I know obviously they're known for their for their flair play, but that's a big pack still. That is a big pack and there's lots of big players um, you're, you're playing up against. And I think the biggest thing, I mean, we spoke to Harrison Keddy years ago about his step up because he was that like the star of that under 20s side that won the Grand Slam and was, you know, barreling three players, this real kind of uh, wrecking ball of a back row forward. And he said that that step up was, was massive. He said it was like going from playing kids rugby to playing men's rugby again. And I think the the way that Mackenzie Martin was just making yards, you know, he, he, I think he's only played three games or three starts for Cardiff and he looks, you know, he looks an absolute, um, and yeah, a rough diamond for sure. But I'm not saying fast track him into the Wales side. But he is a player who's got a really bright future ahead of him. And I agree. I think that the um, the the fullbacks. I thought. I think Beetham looks a lot more kind of. Um, he's very steady under the high ball kicking game. Win it is perhaps a bit more of a, a jack in the box of a of a 15. But they're both they're both excellent players. And Teddy Williams looks like he's 30 now. Um, do you know? He's he, again for someone who's so who's so young. He looks physically really big and um again is is not taking a backward step even in a game like that so, so um so i think yeah i think i think you're right given how hastily this that squad was assembled with lots of academy players dropped in and you know a few a few kind of um free agents knocking around i think that, that they could well have something when they when they're given an opportunity to to strengthen the squad which they'll have to do cleverly um over the summer um but yeah yeah, it is going to be tricky, isn't it? Because obviously, as we were talking about earlier, that your know, budget's going to be cut again unless something changes. So, you know, they 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 may have to lose players um, to to just to just to you know make the make the cut really. Um, but if they have you know if they have lost lost many of the the high earners already, then there's an opportunity that if they can if they can strengthen in certain areas, as you say. Obviously, there's there's they're a bit light in some places, a bit you know light to ten. Obviously, light mm-hmm. in the centre a bit, given you know I mean obviously Halaholo and, and Lilo are. Terrific players, but they are getting on a bit now. Um, but yeah, there's there's a good young pack coming together there. There's some you know really talented runners there as well. Um, yeah, so it's I think it's, it's probably it's it's um, 
it's an exciting time, really. I mean, given if if you have if you've got to temper your expectations, I don't expect Cardiff to win the European Cup. Yeah, but just just enjoy what they're trying to do. I I would imagine being a Cardiff supporter is you know can be quite quite an interesting and an exciting experience at the moment. And a fixture like having Bath to follow that as well, you know. I'm not saying I'm not saying it's it's winnable, but it's an exciting fixture to follow. You know, even a win against Bath, if that was if that was the only thing to come out of the European campaign, would be a great would be a great night. You know, it'd be a great um, a, a great thing to to remember, kind of going into it. So, um, I think there's uh, yeah, there there are reasons to to be optimistic, even if it's uh, you know even if it, it could be a tricky season ahead. Um, well, they've got a lovely fixture list there, haven't they? They've got you know, Bath and Harlequins. Bath and Quins, yeah. That's, you know, that's, we wouldn't mind that. We've got, uh, Scala's got Black Lion and Edinburgh. So it's not it's almost, it's back to the merit table days where they're defining their own fixtures, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> they'd be the, they'd be the yeah. ones you'd pick out. It'd be, it'd be Cambridge University the following week. Fantastic, um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that was, uh, yeah, that, that'd be a good one to look forward to as well. Um, and as I said, right at the start of the show, uh, dragons wins are about as, as rare as hen's teeth but um it was uh yeah a, an intriguing game in played in almost like hurricane conditions the wind whipping in off the usk uh but they they hung into the game well the dragons and, and came out second half and actually used you know used the um the win to their advantage steph hughes was superb with his um with his tactical kicking out of hand and set up a, set up a couple of tries in doing that um so you know again i, I think that's just um you got to be realistic that that any win is going to be is going to be greeted with a, with a degree of enthusiasm. But the fact actually that they didn't just bumble over the line, they got you know they got the job done and then picked up a bonus point with the last play of the game. I think it'll give them some confidence for um, for a side that was probably pretty low on it to be honest. Yeah, it was great to see, wasn't it? And and you know they they really struggled with injuries as well because you know like a lot of the Welsh teams. That, that Dragons first fifteen isn't isn't a bad first fifteen, mm. but you know they're missing they've been missing so many players throughout the season, so um, it's great to see you know and it's, it's you know, a couple of wins in a, in a few weeks now, isn't it? After the uh, the Ospreys win as well, so yeah, they're, they're doing all right. It's um, very undragonsy, but um, it's, but it's good to see you know um, and that, this is what will bring people back, isn't it? So you've got you know, supporters who want to support, want to give the support to their their team, and they need to have something. To support really, and and if the dragons are playing in that kind of style, and they are challenging teams, and they are getting over the line in the odd game, then that's that's only going to stand them in good stead. Because again, you know, there are a lot of really promising players there. You know, there are lots lots of good you know seasoned international players there as well, but also a lot of good young players working their way through. So, you know, it's um, it's good, and you know they've got they've got Zebra as as their away game, one of their away games. So, you know, there's a there is a chance there that they could pick up a couple of wins and you never know that might be enough to to get through to the next stage yeah which i think would be a welcome uh, a welcome boost um but yeah that will will pretty much do us for the uh for the review of uh, the the week's rugby we've got um plenty more uh, to talk about next week um and hopefully it won't all be doom and gloom but um if you want to indulge in a bit of doom and gloom in true in true Welsh style, um, but also have a uh, enjoy a fantastic read. Uh, one more, one more plug for the uh, um, for the book. It's called Welsh Rugby: What Went Wrong, um, and it's available at all uh, all good bookstores. Um, but thank you very much indeed, Sai, for joining. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you. Um, and yeah, best of, best of luck with the um, yeah, with the, the sales from here on in. Thanks, Jim. I really enjoyed tonight, and thanks for having me on to to do a bit of plugging. That's it's been great. Really enjoyed it. No worries. Yeah, yeah. Welcome anytime.
Social Podcast Network.